Welcome to the Root of Power podcast, where I teach you how to chase your joy, find alignment, and create a life and a business that you love using actionable methods, interviews, and inspiring stories from people who know that true freedom is found within. I'm your host, your always hype woman and sometimes ass kicker, Amanda Chills, and I am so proud of you for choosing to step into your power. Come along, we've got dreams to build. Hello, podcast fam. Okay, I have got a like wonderful human being for you this week who is super grounding, very fun energy, Dr. Stephen James, who runs Humanity Consulting, which love the name, by the way, because what you do is so rooted in like humanness. And I feel like we just need so much more of that. Um, so he's going to tell you what he does and how he got there. And it's like a pretty cool winding road. So welcome and thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yes. So if you just want to start with what you do and then how you got there, because it's not a a very, I guess it's linear looking back, but it doesn't seem like a very linear path. Yes. Um, I found, I found the path through the forest, but it definitely had quite a few turns along the way. I, I, I now what I focus on in my business, I am an educational growth psychologist um, I focus on growth cultivation, and that is taking us beyond where we have been before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is when you think about therapy, you think about crisis response in stabilizing back to normal. How do I go from this horrible situation I've been in back to mm-hmm. where I'm I'm at a place where I was at before? Mm-hmm. Um, when you think of other types of health and wellness things like coaching. You think of like, here, I've got some goals that I want to pursue and some things I want to achieve. Help me build habits to get there. Yeah. Growth cultivation is neither one of those things. Uh, it is it is the psychology of development of our intrinsic selves. So we know that there's a a, a process that goes on in your mind when you go through difficult times. We all know that when you struggle, that's when we gain the most out of life. Mm. We don't like the struggle. We don't like the trauma. We don't like getting knocked down. But we also know that when we come out the other side, we're usually more authentic, uh, more true to ourselves. Yeah. And that has a a name to it called post-traumatic growth. And what I work with is understanding what that process is and actually unraveling it, taking Mm. off the, the peels and getting down to What's actually going on in a person that develops that more authentic, true self? Mm-hmm. And what's ultimately happening is people are becoming more self-transcendent. And that comes through the development of the intrinsic self. Now, I've started to, to dive into, I've talked about self-transcendence, and we said it's humanness and it's intrinsic. Mm-hmm. So all of these things are often terms we associate with um alternative spiritualities or some sort of mysticism almost, except I approach it completely from a scientific perspective because all of this is in the the psychological literature. So there's a defined process that we can unravel to understand how we grow as people to become our most true, authentic, self-transcendent selves. And I lead people through that process. Okay. First of all, yes to everything, (laughs) everything you just said. So I would, 
like to talk about maybe then why trauma, stress, um, grief, hardships break some people and make others? Like, is it that they have more intrinsic buffers, which like, we're not going to deny systemic supports or systemic barriers. Like obviously those things make a difference as well, but why, why do some things that break some people make others, if that makes sense? So I'm going to push back on your question a little bit there uh, and say that in order for real growth to occur, we have to break. Mm. It's, it's critical. So the, I, take issue with some of the interpretations and the way resiliency is being implemented. It's the new buzzword um, for education (laughs) and, and in a number of other fields, like we all need to be resilient and push through. Well, no, we don't. No, we don't. Uh, Many times the correct better option for us is to fall apart is to be weak. Mm. Um, The way now resiliency as a concept in psychology can be very helpful, but Mm. the way it's been implemented and addressed in the public has been somewhat negative because it's just another way of saying, don't be weak. And yeah. we need to be weak sometimes. So I can say that from the literature, when it comes to this idea of post-traumatic growth, the people that benefit the least from it are the people that hold on the strongest. Ooh, interesting. The reason for that is because when you're looking to find and embody and actualize a more intrinsic self, you have to let go of the person that you've been. And the more we cling on to that person, uh, we end up pushing past the phase when we can make real change. And then we're just back to who we've been before. Well, that's the whole point of why we were trying to grow was to get beyond that. Right. So if you're not willing to let go of who you are, you can't become who you're meant to be or want to be. Yes, Hmm. very much so. How did you, how did you get here? Like, were you so, just born a baby and you're like, let's talk growth, mom? <laughs> no, definitely not. I, I started in a very different track. When I was five years old, my grandmother got me uh, a little mobile set of the planets that were to scale. Um, and I was able to pin them on my ceiling. And and I just remember looking at it and thinking like, wow, this whole little, even at five years old, this this little marble right here is is the entire planet Earth. And mm. yet there, here's here's Jupiter and then here's the sun, which doesn't even fit in the screen. And I'm like, oh wow. my gosh, this is this. And this is just the solar system. So I became fascinated with science and astronomy and space. And I picked up my first book on quantum mechanics when I was nine. Decided I wanted as to be- you, As nine-year-olds do. As, as they do. I was pretty <laughs> geeky. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was fun. I, I loved reading about it. And I had, thankfully had very- supportive parents and teachers um, that indulged my geekiness. And uh, when I was 10 years old, I decided I was going to be an astrophysicist in the Air Force. And that's what I was going to do. I also had it in my mind that if there was aliens and spaceships, the Air Force is the place that would know about them. So I would be able to go there and know (laughs) all of the secrets and conspiracy theories myself. That is hilarious to me. Okay. So are they real? Did you find out or are you allowed to tell us? I I did find out they are not real. (laughs) Um, I am still holding out hope. You have to say that though. (laughs) 
I, I would, right? I'd have to, I, I'm lying one way. I'm either telling the <laughs> truth or I'm lying, but I have to say no either way. Um, but I'm still holding out hope that there's a third organization because it's not the Air Force and it's not NASA that has any real so knowledge great. of this at all. So I'm hope, still hoping for like a men in black organization the that I never encountered. <laughs> yeah, something out there. Um, but no, I, I never discovered anything. And I worked in areas that I would to have, I would have had to have known mm -hmm. um, if that was the case. And I also drank with people that would have definitely known. And I asked, the remain <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Um, so I, I really pursued this yeah. strongly. I, I, I was a boy scout. I was an Eagle scout when I was young, because it was very much akin to, to jumping into the military, mm -hmm. at least the way that it was run. So it was kind of a, a next step. I got a scholarship in the air force for astrophysics. Uh, and I graduated and became an astrophysicist in the Air Force. Uh, that's what I did. And I worked as one for about six and a half years in the Air Force. And I was doing really well for myself, I thought, in terms of being able to do these crazy cool projects, working with astronauts uh, on the shuttle, crashing cool objects into the moon to see what happens, um, you know, working on excellent satellite programs. Uh, it was like really neat projects I was working on. And I thought that the work was great. Uh, I took some issue with some of the cultural elements in the military and uh, in the Air sure. Force, which led to some, some other questioning and, and issues later on. But at a certain point, even though I thought life was going pretty well, I was in my mid twenties, mid to late twenties by this point. And I got a call from my uh, from from my home saying that my niece, uh, my brother's daughter, was very ill, and oh. that I had to get home right away. Uh, and so I tried to get home as quickly as I could. I actually even went AWOL technically to get home wow. because I it was the middle of the night and I had to I left at like four a.m. so I couldn't mm -hmm. get in touch with the commander. So I had to work on all that paperwork on my way getting there, and. When I got there, I unfortunately didn't get there in time before she had slipped into a coma. Mm -hmm. And she died a few days later after that. Uh, she was a little over two years old. And oh, she was a never, wee baby. They were never able to explain what happened. They couldn't identify a bacteria or a virus or any sort of congenital problem, like nothing. She just got sick and died. I'm sorry. And yeah, um, it was it was a difficult time. Um, and I went home with my brother. I remember going home from the hospital and we sat in the dark in his house and I said, you know, this kind of thing can tear a family apart. Yeah. You you still have your wife. And so you guys got to work together and make sure that this, make sure that you're there to support each other because you don't want to see what you have left fall apart. And you still have two other children from a previous marriage. Yeah. So, you know, you, you have things to take care of and people around you. Um, but I was only there for a brief period of time. Like I had to go back to my station, um, which yeah. was several thousand miles away. And I wasn't there for him. Uh, and so over the next year or so, he he was really stricken with grief, obviously, and him and his wife did not handle things together well. 
uh, she she was always reminded, home reminded her of the child she lost. Right. And for my brother was kind of became a recluse and just didn't want to go out. He wanted to stay in a comfortable mm. bubble. So yeah. they really never saw each other. Um, my brother started drinking pretty heavily and he died about a year after my niece mm. died. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And, um, and I took that, uh, I took a lot of responsibility over his death mm. um, because at the time I was in the Air Force and the Air Force has a, a, or the military in general has a kind of mentality of, of kick people when they're down. So they stand up stronger. Um, you know, yes, they do. Uh, and it's, it's kind of built into the philosophy, unfortunately, mm-hmm. of, of the military culture. And it's very wrong. Um, you know, yeah. that, that, that kind of idea of tough love like that is, is very detrimental. Yeah. Um, and, I was young and impressionable and I had that, I took on that view and I used it with my brother while he was in grief. Um, and so that pushed him further away. Uh, I was his best friend. Uh, I was his only brother too. And um, I can even look back at some of the emails I sent him and read them and they, they were, they were what they weren't nice um, yeah. and they weren't compassionate. Uh, and so I take on a lot of responsibility for what happened um, uh, because he died feeling alone. Uh, he died alone in his house. Uh, he had stopped paying the bills on his on his heat, and it's November in Pennsylvania, uh, so he was just sitting in the cold. Um, so he he had he had pretty much given up the will to live, um, yeah. and so that was tough. At the same time, my two nephews from my brother's previous marriage were still um, were they were also looking for an explanation and someone to blame. And they kind of looked towards me, even though they didn't know about all of these emails and things. Sure. Um, they, they looked toward that and they kind of cut off contact with me as well. So um, that's like loss, loss, loss. Loss, loss. Yeah, that's yes. a lot of losses. Um, so then three months after that, my best friend since childhood was killed in a car accident. Um, Damn. Uh, and then... A, a week after that was when, at this point, I was working on my graduate degree uh, in uh, my graduate degree in the Air Force, and I just I was graduating uh, a week later, and my wow. new assignment was out to Hawaii. So I was actually within driving distance of my family while I was in graduate school, and uh, this took me really far away from the little bit of support network network I had left, and yeah. left me alone and isolated where I was. Uh, out in Hawaii, in Outer Islands, Hawaii, in a very different culture than what I was used to. Right. Um, and it was, it was tough. I was alone. And eventually I tried to dive into my work, but eventually I broke. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. How could you not? Yeah. It, I mean, I just tried to stave it off for as long as possible, but it was inevitable. It, um, yeah. It always comes up. Yeah. So that's when I I broke and I quit my PhD program in astrophysics and emailed my commander and told him that I didn't know how, but I was going to leave the Air Force at the earliest opportunity, which still took a year and a half. But these were the two biggest, these are the two things I'd want to do with my entire life. And all of a sudden, and and they broke on uh, December 4th was Mm -hmm. was the date when I kind of snapped. And I, I told everyone, like, I don't know what's wrong, but I've got a moment of clarity and everything in my life is wrong. (laughs) Um, everything (laughs) and uh making it was almost liberating though in a way because yeah well you're like burn it all down fuck it yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah I was. Um, that is not an attitude, as I found out later, that the Air Force enjoys. <laughs> Fair. Yes. <Really. laughs> um, but I started working to, to change myself and change my direction uh, as yeah. I could. This was a period of time. Um, I got into therapy very quickly to, to handle the trauma and loss. But at the same time, I was working to find a better self. I had spent my whole yeah. life looking forward, looking at technology mm. and space travel and all of this for answers in yeah. the world. Uh, and instead, I, I realized that I need to turn the other way and start looking mm. backward. Um, and so I started reading books on philosophy and theology and 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 psychology. Uh, yeah. and I fell in love with positive psychology, which I didn't even know existed at the time. Yeah. Um, Can you so explain what to, it is for people yes, that don't know? We are so used to psychology dealing with pathologies studying all the disorders. I mean, probably a lot of people have heard of the DSM, right? Uh, it's on the DSM-5 now, which is like this thick of, yeah. of disorders. disorders. Things that are wrong some, with you. Some more arbitrary than others, I would right. argue. That's uh-huh. another topic. 100%. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but so we're used to this idea of psychology of just looking at everything that's wrong with people. Mm. But for decades and decades and decades now, psychology is focused on everything that's right with people. What creates joy and happiness? What creates altruism and humility and compassion? And trying to find ways of understanding what that is, both internally and externally for everybody. What environments do we need to cultivate that? And what do we need in ourselves to make that happen? And so positive psychology is something that I just fell in love with as I was reading. Um, Because post-traumatic growth is part of positive Positive, psychology, even though it's a clinical side of things. Um, Yeah. And so I was actually reading a book in an airport when I was still just kind of freshly dealing with some of these losses and traumas Mm -hmm. and the chapter in a book on adversity. And it started talking about post-traumatic growth. And I just started crying in the middle of the airport, which I'm sure was fun for the people around me, but uh, it was an acknowledgement that what I was experiencing in these, in this desire yeah. for change wasn't isolated, that it was yeah. not just common, but it was so common that there were terms and, yeah. and research for it. Like, oh my God, mm-hmm. I can't believe this. So I decided that I was, well, I had two options. I was either going to move to Nepal and become a monk for several years. Love it. Or go to back to school for a different PhD in psychology. Also love Um, it. Both are great. Both were equally valid choices. I was considering both. um, And I decided to go with the PhD uh, because I thought the knowledge was useful to have up front. And I went back to school to study what was wrong with me. Uh, I was actually Mm. part of my healing process as well. I wanted to know what had happened to me somehow through all of this loss and trauma, I felt more serene and joyful Mm -hmm. than I have ever felt in my entire life that I ever thought I could feel. Even though I thought life was good, I had accolades and achievements and was working toward my goals and getting them. I didn't understand what I didn't have Mm -hmm. um, in terms of that serenity and peace. And I so wanted to understand this process because I wanted to know does it have to take the trauma? Do you really have to go through this type of horrible loss to find the place that I found? And if it's this studied of a topic, there's got to be that research out there and that data. Um, 
there there ended up not being. Uh, mm-hmm. There there's lots of research on post traumatic growth and after conditions for it mm-hmm. after a loss. But the idea of well, what's the process in a way that maybe we could quote educate this? Mm-hmm. Is there a way you could teach this kind of growth? And there really wasn't anything out there. And that's that's where I did my research for six or seven years was into yeah. that. Um, and, and I implemented it for several years into some schools, mm-hmm. uh, both in terms of course courses and school-wide culture changes. And that's just, amazing. It, it works. It's a process that works. You don't have to go through trauma to, to experience those results. And, and I've been able to find a way to give people what I found. Yeah. Which is, uh, I just like, I would scream on the podcast, but it would hurt people's ears. So we're not <laughs> going to, but like safe to say, I'm excited about the work you do. Um, I think it takes a very particular type of human to one, go through hell and come out singing. And then two, allow others to not go through hell, but like teach them how to sing, if that analogy makes sense. So taking your grief and turning it into a gift where you actually just made it into a formula. So it's like, I was talking to a friend of mine about cooking tonight and they were like, oh, I was like watching you cook the other night. And like, I I just can't do what you do. And I was like, I throw shit in a pan and cook it till it's done. Like, it's not hard, but I'm like, oh, if someone's never been given a formula, then they don't know. Like, so like as a therapist or coach, I have formulas for like setting boundaries or healthy relationships or having standards. Like, so then when we think about, oh, well, how do I do this? It's like everything we do is formulaic. And so it's helpful or it's not helpful. Right. But if we can teach people to formulate, they can fill in their thing, which is exactly what you're doing, which is so dope. So like, what is one of the coolest or most memorable transformations that you've had? Cause you work with like schools, businesses, organizations, individuals. So like you really have such a wide, um, breadth. I don't think I pronounced that right. Such a wide variety of people you work with. Like what's some of the coolest turnarounds that you've seen? Uh, I think still the coolest ones are when I can work with with youth. I, I think when mm-hmm. you're dealing with college age or sometimes even high school age, because that's where you can, that's the age where there's so much attention placed on other people's evaluations of you. And yes. part of that's neurological. It's part of the neurological process of development. The brains break in the teenage years into the early 20s. They just don't work right by 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 design and (laughs) during that period of time you don't you don't have to just let that that languish right you can Mm -hmm. actually help people help those students help those those youthful uh aspiring people see and understand not people yet just aspiring (laughs) us yeah uh (laughs) you're You're good (laughs) yeah it's you're fine Yeah, you can help them. I, I had I had a student once that had an uh, an auditory processing disorder, and which which meant that they couldn't they could be in a room where it's totally silent, but like every cough, every sneeze, every every little snicker was amplified, um, and it caused them to not be able to function in classrooms. Yeah, and this ended up leading to a whole bunch of problems with the schools they were in with the teachers, with the other students and such an amazing, such a saddening, saddening 
amount of self-doubt and to a crippling level of, of anxiety and and helping them understand the psychology of of building self-confidence, of overcoming conformity, of understanding why people act the way they act in the first place in terms of self-validation mm-hmm. and coming to helping them find their intrinsic direction at an early age that, that they took and ran with it. And they actually went and are now a huge advocate for, uh, they went into psychology themselves and they are in now as an adult, they are an advocate for domestic violence. Uh, survivors. Oh yeah. Um. Yeah. So it's it's places like that that I see the most the most transition because there's also still that youthful optimism of like, well, what can I do next? Yeah, Where can yeah. I go from here? Um, but you're right. I work with a diverse group of people. Um, I'm even working right now with a couple of families in terms of improving family dynamics. I love because. That you work with the teenagers in that same way mm-hmm. or the, the young people, but then the parents also, they may have taken their life in the wrong direction, sure. or it might also be the case that some of their ideas of parenting maybe need a little adjustment right. as, as well. Um, right. Not, not that anybody, not that anyone's a bad parent, but maybe there's better ways to support um, uh, adolescents. Yeah. I mean, in terms of my clients that I have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I get a lot of teenagers and the parents are like, fix my kid. And I'm like, you raised your kid. <laughs> we got to <laughs> fix everybody. <laughs> yes. But I, I think too, and you may find this with your, with your young people. And if we're working in a company with multi-generations, like I really find that older people, parents or bosses, like struggle with young adults. They're like, especially if they like in a family unit, they're like, well, this was my sweet little baby. But now they're becoming an adult and like, I don't know what to do. Like you can't treat them like a seven-year-old anymore. So really like taking a systems view, which it sounds like what you do and saying, okay, what's everybody's trajectory and where do you want it to be? And what's your own personal growth? What's your own goals and dreams and hopes? And then let's make it work as a unit. Yeah. Like lifts the whole system. Yeah, when it comes to that generational thing, and I definitely can can point to this in mm-hmm. the business clients they have as well, is understanding that the experience, the experience and wisdom you have in a field or in life in general, is only as good as what's received by the people you're trying to give it to. Um, if people don't okay. receive it, uh, a communications thing, mm-hmm. you, we we all encode our language in a particular way, and it gets decoded on the other end. If the way that that's communicated is never received in the way it's intended, then it might as well have not even been said. And oftentimes when you're speaking to someone that's young enough and maybe even brash enough, you might not be able to say it the right way (laughs) in a particular time. You, sometimes you have to wait for there to be a mistake or a moment Mm -hmm. of uncertainty before you can say things. Uh, we, we, We get into this mode because our education system sadly works this way of lecturing. Um, if, if I've, if I've said it now, you know it. And that simply <laughs> isn't the way right. humans work. Right. Uh, so we have to integrate. Yeah. You can't just say something, someone, especially when it's got to do with um, their identity and, and sense and their sense mm-hmm. of validation. Yeah. Some people you have, you can guide people. And when they start to make mistakes, you can say, all right, let's talk about what's going on here. Yeah. But 
uh, intergenerationally, I noticed that that's, that's the problem they have is like, I have all this experience and knowledge and I want to give it to the younger, the, the younger workers in, in, yeah. in the company, but they won't listen. Um, well, you know, and a lot of that's because they're, they're not listening and they yeah. might not totally listen right. at all. Um, yeah. so, oh, that's funny. Is. So but, you love, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I want to, I want to go back to something you said earlier yeah, also, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the, the systematic nature of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, this is really the big thing I hope to communicate as a broad understanding that I really want to become more mainstream is most of us are raised with this idea that finding our true selves and, and building up your, your authentic identity and, and all mm-hmm. of these things is some sort of mysterious process and it's unique to everyone and no one can ever tell you how it works or where you're supposed to go. It's That's just so self-discovery. And <laughs> um, to the point that we'll get inundated with those, so funny. with those cliches of, of go out and find yourself and, right. you know, but no one ever says how. Right. And so just we do assume it. wander that, around in the woods until yeah. you discover who you are. Yeah. And we all assume that that's just what you have to do right. with no real thought that, well, maybe there is a defined process. There is, there is. We just never taught it to anybody. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's so true. Yeah, I have so many people that are like, what's my purpose? I'm like, I don't fucking know. Make one. Like, that's it. Go, yeah. go decide what it is and follow it until you die. Oh, that's so funny. Okay. So how do you do it? If it's not just frolicking in a field for a decade and then you come out and you're, you are who you are, like, how do we figure out who we are at our core? Okay. So imagine that everything that you've built up in yourself, in terms of who you are as an identity, all your beliefs, your values, your perceptions, your experiences, they all sit behind a giant castle wall. And that castle wall is giant and super protective. In psychology, you call that a worldview defense. Um, and it's a protective thing. Like we, we want to insulate our identity from harm. Yeah. What happens is when someone walks up and goes, hey, you know, I don't think you're going in the right direction for your purpose. Or do you really want to live your life this way? Mm-hmm. We don't go, oh, what a great question. Come in and let's discuss it over tea. We, we say... We say, no, get out of here. How dare you question my way of life or how I live? Uh, And that worldview defense is actually connected with our fight or flight reaction. So Mm -hmm. we react the same way to simple questions like that as if we're being physically attacked. Mm -hmm. And so we don't end up in any like useful dialogue or self-reflection as a result. It's pure defense. When we go through post-traumatic growth, kind of the opposite thing happens where Imagine now instead of a person walking up to the wall, it's a giant meteor from space hurtling through the atmosphere at 50,000 miles an hour right. and it smashes through your wall. Well, you now they're down. Get, yeah. You don't get to have a defense. It's just crumbled, a crumbled mess everywhere. And now you're left having to pick up the pieces. Mm-hmm. And most of the time this happens after we have a family and a job and finances to pay. And so we have to handle all of that and deal with all of this trauma. So the process is essentially about creating little mini earthquakes underneath of your defense wall so that that way we avoid the defensiveness and that fight or flight reaction, but we bring down the wall at the same time. And while we're bringing it down, we bring up a healthier one in its place. 
I love this. I love this. So you shake your foundations, you challenge your beliefs, you let your walls down, you become vulnerable, you self-reflect. And then you really also get to choose like some part that some parts of that wall are probably helpful long-term. Mm-hmm. And this is something I see all the time. Like not every coping skill is bad. And in, you know, if we take a macro view, like every coping skill, even if it's unhelpful now, got you through whatever you needed to get through so that you didn't die. Like, I can't tell you how many clients I've worked with, with substance use. And I'm like, well, like, do we want you using cocaine long-term? Probably not. But if cocaine is better than committing suicide, well, it got you here. We just don't have to carry it forever. So, so once we shake those things down, we can go stone by stone and say like, do I want to keep this? Yes, because the goal ultimately then is to be self-reflective and conscious about what gets put back. Yes. The the term that I use for this and, and the others is that one is extrinsically derived values and one is intrinsically derived values, but they're not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Just because something was extrinsic, meaning external. It came from somewhere on the outside. It could have been from your family. It could have been from watching law and order, uh, but somewhere you developed this, this stone that got put into place into your, into your wall, but it was never reflected upon or, or evaluated to say, is this right for me? I love that question. Oh, you are so good. I'm going to give every one of my clients your freaking episode. (laughs) (laughs) You are so good because that, I think a lot of people miss that question. So like I have a framework for advice taking and I think you'll like it. So give me your thoughts. One, we want to be like, is this objectively good advice? Because some people just give you like, really? They're like, oh, you're stressed out? Drive your car into a tree. And you're like, no, that is horrible advice. We're not doing that one. So objectively is a good advice, right? Like, okay, do they kind of know what they're talking about? Two, even if it is good advice, is it true for me? And then if it's not, okay, it may be good advice, but it won't work for you. So if someone's like, Amanda, you're stressed out. You should, I don't know, climb Mount Everest. I'm gonna be like, bro, I'm not, no. (laughs) I need something that's gonna work. I need to lie on a field of dandelions. Like, what are we doing? So I love that question. Does this work for me? And I think a lot of people just don't question what they're doing, which is a beautiful thing about post-traumatic growth without the post-traumatic part is you can just literally do this process without your world going to shit. Yes. We love that. can be done slowly over a period of time. Ideally, it's done over a period of time because we want to do it softly and and Mm. as gently as we can. That doesn't mean that it's all happy, joy, joy feelings. It's not about positivity. (laughs) It does come out of post-traumatic growth. So part of that that earthquake shaking, that foundation shaking is going through a lot of really negative thoughts, feelings, Mm. and emotions that we usually try to avoid. I mean, most notably, right, is... uh, consciously looking at our own mortality and our fears of Mm. death. Uh, We don't day to day think we think about death very often, but we very much do. Um, And our existential fears drive much of what we do in our lives. We just have found a way to avoid thinking about it. Uh, And so actually confronting Mm. that in uncomfortable ways is part of how we get to that serenity. For someone that is... 
maybe has really never known peace. Can you describe what it feels like for you? So maybe they have something to look forward to. So they're like, I don't really know, like something is wrong, but I don't really know what it feels like on the other side. And that seems too scary. So I'm not going to do it. Like what is, what does peace feel like? I think you've pointed out the quintessential problem in all of this, right? Uh, people only seek out help for this kind of thing if they think there's a problem. They have to know <laughs> that there's an issue in the first place. And we have a society that goes, look, if you if you can pay your bills and come home to your family every day and nobody's getting physically harmed, well, you're you fine. have a good life and you're fine. <laughs> right. Even really? if you're miserable 24-7 and you hate your job and, oh, by the way, you hate your family. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's not so great after all. So yeah. we tend not to reflect and we have a society that doesn't encourage us to reflect mm-hmm. on that in the first place to know. Uh, the second piece is, is, okay, so maybe even you do recognize that something's wrong. You've never experienced what it's like to be on the other side. And how do you describe an emotion? Um, so that in and of itself is a yeah. problem that I think is still going to be left for philosophy in general. What I can say about what it's like on the other side is, I am teaching a masterclass right now and the topic for the month is beauty. What's the psychology of beauty Uh, and how do we experience more of it in our lives? When you really come out the other side of post-traumatic growth, all you can see is beauty. It is everywhere. You're so good. Can you repeat that? When you come out the other side of post-traumatic growth, all you can see is beauty. Every smile, uh, every laugh, the, the texture of the tree, everything just seems like it's got this awe-inspiring beauty to it. Mm-hmm. Walking, being alive becomes an act of inspiration, uh, an act of life, just moving. It is, mm-hmm. it is kind of this perpetual celebration of where you are. Oh, freaking yes. Damn, mic drop. Okay. We, I don't even know where to go now. That was so good. Hell yes. Okay. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very often that I'm speechless, but like, damn, that was good. What else have we got? So how does someone start? If maybe something is not wrong, but they're like, ooh, Dr. Stephen James said something doesn't have to be super, super wrong for me to do this. I can just start changing my life for the better. What's like step one? Just being like, huh, do I like my life? The first step is starting to become a child again in, in the way that when we sit in the back seat and our parents say something, we go, why? And then they answer and you go, why? And then they go, why? And then you want to keep saying, why, why, why to yourself? Mm. Well, I have this job and, and I like this part of my job. Well, why do you like that part of your job? Well, because it gives me a sense of fulfillment. Well, why does it give you a sense of fulfillment? Well, because, um, because I can help people. Well, why does helping people in this way mm. make you feel better? So there's a, there's a type of question asking and a type of reflectivity that most people are not used to. And sadly, I would say that the skill at being able to do this has decreased considerably as our use Mm -hmm. of electronics has increased. Um, 
using so I, one thing I would say that would help you in terms of building that skill of reflectivity and introspection would be to cut yourself off uh, once a day or, 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 or once a week or once a day for a while from electronics and sit quietly. Oh, the more we yes. the more we distract ourselves, whether that's background music or video games or you know or whatever it happens to be, the less time we're sitting alone with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And sitting alone with ourselves is the first step because that's going to help our brain develop in ways that can help us be more, more reflective. Yeah. Once we have that, we can start to pull apart. So I'm actually giving you more than step one. That's okay. (laughs) We love it. We love it. But I, I have a lot of people who are like, I don't like to sit by myself and I'm like, great, do it more. Thanks. Love you. Bye. (laughs) Yeah. You, You know what? Learning in any capacity, true learning is uncomfortable. And the most uncomfortable learning you can do is about yourself. Mm. So be uncomfortable with yourself. Sit in it. Yes. We love. Uh, yeah. No, no one ever said that this was a, a fun process to go through. And, you know, I think we do do a disservice if we try to tell people that, that, yeah, we're just going to focus on, on positivity and yeah. rainbows for the whole thing. Like, no, there's some, right. there's some deep work we need to right. do if we want to get to a good place. Right. And that's um, spiritual bypassing. Like we don't want to do that either because it's not sunshine and rainbows. Like you got to dig the rot out. And by the way, we're the ones who plant the rot. Yeah, <laughs> so we are. Then we have to take accountability for that. And that sucks. And we're like, Oh, my yeah. garden isn't flourishing because I plant poisonous things. <sighs> yes. Yes, kitty. My cat is very interested in this conversation. <laughs> you can't hear. Uh, let's get everybody involved. He's very existential. We love it. He's like, why all, aren't you feeding me? All mammals can participate. Fair. Uh, so as we're being introspective, what we're looking for is motivations that are not intrinsic to us. And what it means to have an intrinsic motivation is I'll step to an aside and come back to the rest of that sentence in a moment to, to dispel a myth. There's no such thing as natural talent does not exist. Um, Mm. You are not born more capable of solving a math problem or building a house or, or racing, driving a race car than anyone else. Genetically, there's some things in terms of, you know, maybe height, People are more inclined to be a basketball player if, if they're tall. Sure. But outside of those physical characteristics, there's no such thing as natural talent. What you've learned to be good in, what you've learned you're good at and what you've learned you're bad at has come from the cultivation of your intrinsic motivations. So oh. we don't have intrinsic talents. We have intrinsic motivations. And this starts from when we're very, very young when we're babies, the things we're inclined to pursue just because they're fun on their own. Mm. And what is naturally fun on our own is going to be different for each person. And so as our brain starts to develop and we're doing those things, we naturally just are inclined to do because we enjoy them motivationally, that, that builds pathways in our brain that get reinforced. And then it becomes easier for us to do those things over time. Right. That makes sense. But it's a learned skill, but it's a learned skill that we naturally enjoy as adults or, or, or as we get older. It's the thing that we're willing to stay up until 2 a.m. doing, 
knowing we're not going to have any sleep the next day, but we just want to finish because yeah. we're having such a good time. Those are our intrinsic motivations. And we can't have a life where we're always doing that, where we're just doing whatever we enjoy. Right. But the mainstay of our purpose, our, our self-identity should center around those intrinsic motivations. Mm. And when we've told ourselves that, well, I'm good at this thing over here, I don't enjoy it. I never want to stay up past 10 working on it because I really hate it, but I'm good at it and I, yeah. I make money doing it. Well, that's not an intrinsic motivation. And if you're centering your identity around that, that's not good. Mm. Interesting. And I find a lot of people do that. Like we say, how do you spend your time? And they say, well, I work great. What do you do outside of that? And I'm guilty of that, right? Give it, get left to my own devices. I will work almost all the time, but I also love what I do, but also like your girl probably needs a hobby. It's fine. But a lot of people do get lost in external motivations and external validation, right? They're they're doing things for other people that they don't care about, or they're trying to get validation from people that they really also don't respect or care about. And it's like, why? why? That is exactly where the, the trap occurs mm. is because the reason we're willing to then go and do these things that we're not naturally inclined, we don't really enjoy, but we're good at, or we even spend the time to develop the skills to become good right. at, even though we're miserable doing it deep down comes from a desire for external validation mm -hmm. and a fear of not having it is actually the more predominant thing. So we, if we don't have an intrinsic sense of self-worth, so I talked about intrinsic motivation, that intrinsic motivation isn't tied to your self-worth and instead is tied to validation from others, mm -hmm. then, then we get into a trap. Because what that means is if I'm not doing the thing that 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 community or the, the, that group of people mm -hmm. wants me to do, then yeah. they're going to go away. And then where's my self-worth? It's gone. Right. So I need to always be conforming and doing the thing that other people want. And when I do that, they praise me and I feel really good, which we yeah. do feel really good. But we're always on this edge of like, but if I don't do this right, or if I choose to go a different direction, everyone's going to abandon me. Right. Uh, so that might be true depending on the profession, but I would say to that as well, uh, if that's really the community you're in, find a new community. Yeah. And at the cost of self-abandonment, right? Like mm -hmm. that is such a high cost. And I find that people always also always know they're paying it, but they don't know they're paying it. If that makes sense. Like that's the thing that I think we were talking about earlier in terms mm -hmm. of people not knowing what they're missing out on yeah. because when you do have that sense of self, you're at the peak of your game. You're, you're gaining that wealth, power, and prestige from, from this cycle of conforming, right? And, and, sure. and giving up on yourself. And you go, well, this must be what the pinnacle of good feeling feels like. And it feels empty. Yeah. And it's not, right? There's yeah. this whole other side, that side that when I was going through it, I didn't know existed either until right. I experienced it. That, that ability to feel beauty at every moment when you're mm -hmm. walking down the street. That's what's being missed out on. Yeah. And it's, it's wild to take people through that journey and watch them get it. And I don't, I don't know for you, but for me, I can always tell when it clicks because their, their energy shifts. Like I can watch the energy shift when that clicks for people. I call it being in alignment. So when people are in alignment, when they're like, I degaff about 
Betsy and Betty and David, whatever, like, this is my life of my building of my choosing. I feel good about it. I'm doing things that are in my values. Like their, their entire energy shifts, like they feel lighter. And it's crazy to watch from like an outsider perspective, because then I'm like, okay, we're on the downswing now, but like, they can never pick it up just because they, you know, they don't do the work that I do and they haven't been in it long enough. But I like lighter is the word that I hear most often from people. They're like, well, I just feel lighter now. And I'm like, cause you're not carrying so much bullshit. Like <laughs> it's great. And I wonder if you see the same thing. Uh, I think I, what I see most often is when they have that moment of clarity, which I think is what mm. you're describing. Uh, they, they have this kind of like epiphany mm. where they go, oh my God, I've been doing this for everyone else for so long and not for myself. Mm. Um, yeah. And once they have that realization that not only have they been doing that the whole time, but they don't have to be, oh, right. and that there's an alternative, that's when I see that shift occur when there's yeah. just more life in the person. Maybe life is the better word. I say lighter, but it is more life. Like they're just like, oh, oh, like I, you know, all these rules are made up, <laughs> which means yes. I don't have to follow them if I don't want to. And it's like, right. Yeah. We love that. So part of the process I go on as well, in terms of understanding that a lot of those rules are made up. Um, with my clients, I give them history homework. Um, like, all right, let's take a look. Why are you doing this? Well, because this 400-year-old dead French guide said you needed to this long ago. Let's, let's take a look and why you're even doing this at all today. You know, and just how arbitrary and ingrained some of these so things great. are. Yeah. Let's like having a lawn, right? One of my, um, one of my favorite facts is like having a lawn only came about because rich English landowners didn't need land for sustenance. So they were like, I'm so rich. I don't need to farm this. And now everyone's like, oh, I need a lawn. And it's like, why? Just because some rich English people 400 years ago decided like gross. Yeah. It makes no sense. It's, it's, it's shocking where some of these things come from. Yeah. Um, when I was teaching some high school students as well I used to say like okay let's talk about science and there's usually you have a good number of people that are not interested I said well how do you write scientific reports well you need specific terminology and and it's got to be highly technical and non-emotional and I was like okay well why yeah if if the goal is to produce truth Mm. why don't we write a poem is there can you not put truth into a poem could you write a scientific poem you most certainly could. We just don't think about it because we're trained not to think that way. Yeah. Um, I love so the why question. Mm-hmm. I love the why question. I get made fun of with my clients because they're like, you're kind of like a toddler. And I'm like, yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to know why we do the things that we do. Like we're such little gremlins. I love humans. Oh my yes. gosh. This is amazing. I could talk to you forever. Um, how do people work with you if they're like, um, this guy drops bombs all day long and they're like, flower bombs, not destructive bombs. Sometimes they're destructive bombs because we got to break some shit down to build it up, but like not in a bad way. Um, how do people find you, work with you, love you, pay you, all the things? I, I, I'm happy to do free consultations with anybody to see if we're, if we're 
a good fit for each other. Um, even though, so I, I take things from a very scientific perspective initially, but that, that science kind of merges, like I said, as you're going to talk about self-transcendence and actualization and all of this, you get this merge, this convergence of truths that come together. So I, I approach things in a very holistic way, but it's scientific and that works for some people and not for others. Um, but, uh, I'm always happy and I love to do consultations just to chat with people about the topic. Um, and you can contact, you can schedule those right from my website actually um, on humanity-consulting.org is where I keep all of my appointment schedules and you can jump right on and check it out. Um, I'm also building my social media uh, presence um, currently as we're going through on all major platforms. Welcome so. to the jungle. <laughs> Yes. Uh, a personal note. So let me, let me give a little more personal point on this as well. That's actually a challenge for me. Um, I've mm. spent most of my life living very reserved. Um, mm. When I was in the Air Force, the, you didn't tell anybody anything about what you were doing ever. Um, and we were discouraged from using social media at all in the first place. And then from <laughs> academia, you know, the only place you ever publicize yourself is in papers or right. conference proceedings. So <laughs> being more public in a business sense and, and trying to get this message out that's a that's a big shift for me um it's it's fun but it's also a, a little ang anxiety causing as well for myself oh, yeah. um, in learning how to do this but i'm excited about it is that one of the reasons that you like podcasting oh no i've always loved public speaking i love speaking oh. and doing public speaking in general i have since i was little i just like talking it's it's a forum where mm you're standing up somewhere or, or talking on a podcast and everybody listening just has to sit and listen to what you have to say. I mean, it's a captive audience. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> we'll dig into that ego later, but that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay. Humanity-consulting.org. Yes. Love. Dude, thank you so much. Is there, well, I'm not going to say, is there, if everyone suddenly has amnesia and forgets everything that we said, what is the one thing that you want them to remember? Know that you can be more than where you are and get there by questioning everything around you. You are a gem, just a gem. Thank you so much. We Thank love you. this. Okay, fam, go question everything like a toddler. We love it. Yes.